0: when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company. in Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches last large just Stately Clump, back by All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Mark O'Connor. The memory of the dead, says the citizen, taking up his pint glass and glaring at Bloom. Aye, aye, says Joe. You don't grasp my point, says Bloom. What I mean is Sinn Féin, says the citizen. Sinn Féin wan. The friends we love are by our side and the foes we hate before us. The last farewell was affecting in the extreme, from the belfries, far and near, the funeral death bell tolled unceasingly while all round the gloomy precincts rolled the ominous warning of a hundred muffled drums, punctuated by the hollow booming of pieces of ordnance. The deafening claps of thunder and the dazzling flashes of lightning which lit up the ghastly scene, testified that the artillery of heaven had lent its supernatural pomp to the already gruesome spectacle. A torrential rain poured down from the floodgates of the angry heavens upon the bared heads of the assembled multitude, which numbered, at the lowest computation, 500,000 persons. A posse of Dublin Metropolitan Police, superintended by the Chief Commissioner in person, maintained order in the vast throng, for whom the York Street brass and reed band whiled away the intervening time by admirably rendering on their back-draped instruments a matchless melody endeared to us from the cradle by Speranza's plaintive muse. Special quick excursion trains and upholstered charabanks had been provided for the comfort of our country cousins of whom there were large contingents. Considerable amusement was caused by the favourite Dublin street singers Lenehan and Mulligan, who sang the night before Larry was stretched in their usual mirth-provoking fashion. Our two Inimitable drolls did a roaring trade with their broadsheets among lovers of the comedy element, and nobody who has a corner in his heart for real Irish fun without vulgarity will grudge them their hardened pennies. The children of the male and female foundling hospital who thronged the windows overlooking the scene were delighted with this unexpected addition to the day's entertainment, and a word of praise is due to the little sisters of the poor for their excellent idea of affording the poor fatherless and motherless children a genuinely instructive treat. The vice-regal house party, which included many well-known ladies, was chaperoned by their excellencies to the most favourable positions on the grandstand, while the picturesque foreign delegation known as the Friends of the Emerald Isle was accompanied on a tribune directly opposite. The delegation, present in full force, consisted of Commendatore Bacci Bacci Beno Beno Beno, the semi-paralysed doyen of the party who had to be assisted, to his seat by the aid of a powerful steam crane, Monsieur Pierre-Paul Petit Patin, the Grand Joker, Vladimir Polkentankerchef, the Arch Joker, Leopold Rudolf von Schwarzenwald Hodenthaler, Countess Marha Veraga, Kissasoni Puterpesti, Hiram Y. Bombust, Count Athanatos Kanamalopoulos, Ali Baba Bakshish Rahat Locum Effendi, Senor Hidalgo Caballero, Don Peccadillo, y Palabras, y Della Malora, Della Malaria, Poco, Harry Curie, He Hong Chang, Olaf, Copper Minhir Minheer Trick van Trumps, Pan polaks Paddy Risky, Goosepond Prisker, Kratjana Braticic, Herr Hurhaus Director President, Hans Chuelchi Staruli. National Gymnasium, Museum, Sanatorium, Suspendorium, Ordinary Privat Docent General History, Special Professor Dr. Kriegfried Ubergang mein, All the delegates, without exception, expressed themselves in the strongest possible heterogeneous terms concerning the nameless barbarity which they had been called upon to witness. An animated altercation, in which all took part, Ensued among F O T E I as to whether the eighth or the ninth of March was the correct date of birth of Ireland's patron saint. In the course of the argument, cannonballs, skimmers, boomerangs, blunderbusses, stink pots, meat choppers, umbrellas, catapults, knuckle dusters, sandbags, lumps of pig iron were resorted to, and blows were freely exchanged. The baby policeman, Constable MacFadden, summoned by a special courier from Buterstown, quickly restored order, and with lightning promptitude, proposed the 17th of the month as a solution equally honourable for both contending parties. The ready-witted Nine-Footers' suggestion at once appealed to all and was unanimously accepted. Constable McFadden was heartily congratulated by the FOTEI, several of whom were bleeding profusely. Commendatore Benino Benoni, having been extricated from underneath the presidential armchair, it was explained by his legal advisor, Avocato Pagamimi, that the various articles secreted in his 32 pockets had been abstracted by him during the affray from the pockets of his junior, junior colleagues in the hope of bringing them to their senses. The objects, which included several hundred ladies and gentlemen's gold and silver watches, were promptly restored to their rightful owners, and general harmony reigned supreme. Quietly, unassumingly, Rumbold stepped onto the scaffold in faultless morning dress and wearing his favourite flower, the gladiolus cruentus, He announced his presence by that gentle Rumboldian cough which so many have tried, unsuccessfully, to imitate. Short, painstaking, yet withal so characteristic of the man. The arrival of the world-renowned headsman was greeted by a roar of acclamation from the huge concourse, the viceregal ladies waving their handkerchiefs in their excitement while the even more excitable foreign delegates cheered vociferously in a medley of cries. Hoch, Banzai, Elgen, Zivio, Chin Chin, Polocronia, Hip Hip, Viva, Ala, amid which the ringing Eviva of the Delegate of the Land of Song, a high double F recalling those piercingly lovely notes with which the eunuch Catalani beglamoured our great-great-grandmothers, was easily distinguishable. It was exactly 17 o'clock. The signal for prayer was then promptly given by megaphone, and in an instant all heads were bared, the commendatore's patriarchal sombrero, which has been in the possession of his family since the revolution of Rienzi, being removed by his medical advisor in attendance, Dr Pippi. The learned prelate, who administered the last comforts of holy religion to the hero-martyr when about to pay the death penalty, knelt in a most Christian spirit in a pool of rainwater, his cassock above his hoary head, and offered up to the throne of grace fervent prayers of supplication. Hard by the block stood the grim figure of the executioner, his visage being concealed in a ten-gallon pot with two circular perforated apertures through which his eyes glowered furiously. As he awaited the fatal signal, he tested the edge of his horrible weapon by honing it upon his brawny forearm, or decapitated in rapid succession a flock of sheep which had been provided by the admirers of his fell but necessary office. On a handsome mahogany table near him were neatly arranged the quartering knife, the various finely tempered disembowelling appliances, specially supplied by the world famous firm of cutlers, Messrs. Jean Round and Sons, Sheffield, a terracotta saucepan for the reception of the duodenum, colon, blind intestine, and appendix, etc., when successfully extracted, and two commodious milk jugs destined to receive the most precious blood of the most precious victim. The house steward of the amalgamated cats and dogs home was in attendance to convey these vessels when replenished to that beneficent institution. Quite an excellent repast consisting of rashers and eggs, fried steak and onions, done to a nicety, delicious hot breakfast rolls and invigorating tea, had been considerably provided by the authorities for the consumption of the central figure of the tragedy, who was in capital spirits when prepared for death, and evinced the keenest interest in the proceedings from beginning to end, but he... With an abnegation rare in these our times, rose nobly to the occasion and expressed the dying wish, immediately acceded to, that the meal should be divided in aliquot parts among the members of the sick and indigent roomkeepers' association as a token of his regard and esteem. The neck and non plus ultra of emotion were reached when the blushing bride elect burst her way through the serried ranks of the bystanders and flung herself upon the muscular bosom of him who was about to be launched into eternity for her sake. The hero folded her willowy form in a loving embrace, murmuring fondly, Sheila, my own. Encouraged by this use of her Christian name, she kissed passionately all the various suitable areas of his person, which the decencies of prison guard permitted her ardour to reach. She swore to him, as they mingled the salt streams of their tears, that she would cherish his memory, that she would never forget her hero boy who went to his death with a song in his lips as if he were but going to a hurling match in Clonturk Park. She brought back to his recollection the happy days of blissful childhood together on the banks of Anna Liffey, when they had indulged in the innocent pastimes of the young and oblivious of the dreadful present. They both laughed heartily, all the spectators, including the venerable pastor, joining in the general merriment. That monster audience simply rocked with delight, but anon they were overcome with grief, and clasped their hands for the last time. A fresh torrent of tears burst from their lacrimal ducts, and the vast concourse of people, touched to the inmost core, broke into heart-rending sobs, not the least affected being the aged prebendary himself. Big, strong men, officers of the peace and genial giants of the Royal Irish Constabulary, were making frank use of their handkerchiefs, and it is safe to say that there was not a dry eye in that record assemblage. A most romantic incident occurred when a handsome young Oxford graduate, noted for his chivalry towards the fair sex, stepped forward and presenting his visiting card, bank book and genealogical tree solicited the hand of the hapless young lady, requesting her to name the day and was accepted on the spot. Every lady in the audience was presented with a tasteful souvenir of the occasion in the shape of a skull and crossbones brooch, a timely and generous act which evoked a fresh outburst of emotion, and when the gallant young Oxonian, the bearer, by the way, of one of the most time-honoured names in Albion's history, placed on the finger of his blushing fiancée an expensive engagement ring with emeralds set in the form of a four-leaved shamrock, excitement knew no bounds. Nay, even the stern provost Marshal, Lieutenant-Colonel Tomkin Maxwell French Mullen Tomlinson, who presided on the sad occasion, he who had blown a considerable number of sepoys from the cannonmouth without flinching, could not now restrain his natural emotion. With his mailed gauntlet, he brushed away a furtive tear and was overcome by those privileged burghers who happened to be in his immediate entourage to murmur to himself in a faltering undertone, God blimey if she ain't a clinker, at there bleeding tart. Blimey, it makes me kind of bleedin' cry, straight it does when I sees her, cos I thinks of my old mash tub, what's waiting for me down Limehouse way. So then the citizens begins talking about the Irish language and the corporation meeting and all to that and the Shonines that can't speak their own language and Joe chipping in because he stuck someone for a quid and Bloom putting in his old goo with his tuppany stump and he cadged off Joe and talking about the Gaelic League and the anti-treating league and drink, the curse of Ireland. Anti-treating is about the size of it. God he'll let you pour all manner of drink down his throat till the Lord would call him before you'd ever see the froth of his pint. And one night, I went in with a fellow into one of their musical evenings. Song and dance about she could get up on a truss of hay, she could, my Maureen lay. And there was a fellow with a ballyhooly blue ribbon badge spiffing out of him in Irish. And a lot of Colleen Bonds going about with temperance beverages and selling medals and oranges and lemonade. And a few old dry buns, gob. So who look entertainment, don't be talking. Iron sober is Ireland free. And then an old fellow starts blowing into his bagpipes and all the gougers shuffling their feet to the tune of the old cow died of. And one or two sky pilots having an eye around that, there was no goings-on with females hidden below the belt. So how and ever, as I was saying, the old dog seeing the tin was empty starts mousing around by Joe and me. I'd train him by kindness, so I would, if he was my dog. Give him a rousing fine kick now and again where it wouldn't blind him. I afraid he'll bite you, says the citizen, sneering. No, says I, but he might take my leg for a lamppost. So he calls the old dog over. What's on you, Gary? says he. Then he starts hauling and mauling and talking to him in Irish, and the old Towser growling, letting on to answer like a duet in the opera. Such growling you never heard as they let off between them. Someone that has nothing better to do ought to write a letter pro bono publico to the papers about the muzzling order for a dog the like of that. Growling and grousing, and his eye all bloodshot from the drouth is in it, and the hydrophobia dropping out of his jaws. All those who are interested in the spread of human culture among the lower animals, and their name is Legion, should make a point of not missing the really marvellous exhibition of synanthropy given by the famous Old Irish Red Wolf Dog Setter, formerly known by the sobriquet of Gary Owen, and recently rechristened by his large circle of friends and acquaintances, Owen Gary. The exhibition, which is the result of years of training by kindness and a carefully thought out dietary system, comprises, among other achievements, the recitation of verse our greatest living phonetic expert wild horses shall not drag it from us has left no stone unturned in his efforts to delucidate and compare the verse recited and has found it bears a striking resemblance the italics are ours to the rounds of ancient celtic bards we are not speaking so much of those delightful love songs with which the writer who conceals his identity under the graceful pseudonym of the little sweet branch has familiarised the book-loving world, but rather, as a contributor DOC points out in an interesting communication published by an evening contemporary, of the harsher and more personal note, which is found in the satirical effusions of the famous Raftery and of Donald McConsidine, to say nothing of a more modern lyrist at present very much in the public eye. We subjoin a specimen, which has been rendered into English by an eminent scholar, whose name for the moment we are not at liberty to disclose though we believe our readers will find the topical allusion rather more than an indication. The metrical system of the canine original, which recalls the intricate alliterative and isyllabic rules of the Welsh England, is infinitely more complicated, but we believe our readers will agree that the spirit has been well caught. Perhaps it should be added that the effect is greatly increased if Owen's verse be spoken somewhat slowly and indistinctly in a tone suggestive of suppressed rancour. The curse of my curses Seven days every day, and seven dry Thursdays on you, Barney Kiernan, has no sup of water to cool my courage and my guts red roaring after Lowry's lights. So he told Terry to bring some water for the dog, and Cobb, you could hear him lapping it up a mile off, and Joe asked him, would he have another? I will, says he, Akara, to show there's no ill feeling. Cobby's not as green as he's cabbage-looking, arsing around from one pub to another, leaving it to your own honour with old Giltrap's dog and getting fed up by the ratepayers and corporators. Entertainment for man and beast. And says Joe, could you make a hole in another pint? Could a swim, duck, says I. Same again, Terry, says Joe. Are you sure you won't have anything in the way of liquid refreshment, says he? I thank you, no, says Bloom. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to meet Martin Cunningham, don't you see, about this insurance of poor Dignam's. Martin asked me to go to the house. You see, he, Dignam, I mean... Didn't serve any notice of the assignment on the company at the time, and nominally under the act the mortgage can't recover on the policy. Holy wars, says Joe, laughing. That's a good one if old Shylock has landed. So the wife comes out top dog, what? Well, that's a point, says Bloom, for the wife's admirers. Whose admirers, says Joe? The wife's advisers," I mean, says Bloom. Then he starts all confused, mucking it up about the mortgager. Under the act, like the Lord Chancellor giving it out on the bench for the benefit of the wife, and that a trust is created, but on the other hand that Dignam owed Bridgman the money, and if now the wife or the widow contested the mortgagee's right, till he near had the head of me addled with his mortgager under the act. He was bloody safe he wasn't running himself under the act, that time as a rogue and a vagabond, only he had a friend in court, selling bazaar tickets, or what do you call it, Royal Hungarian privilege Lottery. True as you're there, oh commend me to an Israelite. Royal and privileged Hungarian robbery So Bob Doran comes lurching around Asking Bloom to tell Mrs Dignam He was sorry for her trouble And he was very sorry about the funeral And to tell her that he said And everyone who knew him said That there was never a truer, a finer Than poor little Willie that's dead to tell her Choking with bloody foolery And shaking Bloom's hand Doing the tragic to tell her that Shake hands brother You're a rogue and I'm another Let me, said he so far presume upon our acquaintance which however slight it may appear if judged by the standard of mere time is founded as i hope and believe on a sentiment of mutual esteem as to request of you this favor but should i have overstepped the limits of reserve let the sincerity of my feelings be the excuse for my boldness no rejoined the other i appreciate to the full the motives which actuate your conduct. And I shall discharge the office you entrust to me, consoled by the reflection that, though the errand be one of sorrow, this proof of your confidence sweetens in some measure the bitterness of the cup. Then suffer me to take your hand, said he. The goodness of your heart, I feel sure, will dictate to you better than my inadequate words the expressions which are most suitable to convey an emotion whose poignancy, were I to give vent to my feelings, would deprive me even of speech. And off with him and out trying to walk straight. Boozed at five o'clock. Night he was near being lagged, only Paddy Leonard knew the Bobby, 14A. Blind to the world up in a shebeen in Bride Street after closing time. Fornicating with two shawls and a bully on card, drinking porter out of teacups. And calling himself a Frenchie for the shawls, Joseph Manuo. And talking against the Catholic religion and he serving mass in Adam and Eve's when he was young. With his eyes shut who wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament "'and hugging and smugging. "'And the two shawls killed with the laughing, "'picking his pockets, the bloody fool, "'and he spilling the porter all over the bed, "'and the two shawls screeching laughing at one another. "'How is your testament? "'Have you got an old testament?' "'Only Paddy was passing there, I tell you what. "'Then see him of a Sunday with his little concubine of a wife, "'and she wagging her tail up the aisle of the chapel "'with her patent boots on her, no less, "'and her violets, nice as pie, doing the little lady. "'Jack Mooney's sister.' And the old prostitute of a mother procuring rooms to street couples. Gob Jack made him toe the line. Told him if he didn't patch up the pot, Jesus, he'd kick the shite out of him. So Terry brought the three pints. Here, says Joe, doing the honours. Here, citizen. Sloan Lat, says he. Fortune, Joe, says I. Good health, citizen. Gobby has the mouth halfway down the tumbler already. What a small fortune to keep him in the drinks.